This morning, we are continuing our study of Luke's Gospel. So, if you have a Bible with you, be that a paper or digital one, can I invite you to get that out right now um, and turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verse 20, and follow along from there. The, the passage will appear up on the screen if you don't have either a paper or digital Bible, but I, I really believe having it in front of you to follow along will serve you well this morning. Um, because we're going to dive around a few other places as well, and I think just reading it in front of you will, will help it, um, help us to engage with the passage. In this morning's passage, Jesus is radically surprising and radically challenging. He's radically surprising because the disciples, and it seems most of God's people at the time, were looking forward to a specific idea of what the Messiah was going to be. And the description that Jesus gives them in this morning's passage is of a mission that seems incomprehensibly, foolishly wrong to them. He's also radically challenging because the vision that Jesus casts for anyone who wants to follow him is not take up your weapons and join me in the palace, but take up your cross, deny yourself. All of this and all of the, do I want that sort of discipleship? Do I want that relationship with God? How on earth do I engage with this question? All of it rests on one question. Who is Jesus? If he truly is God's Messiah, God's anointed savior of you and me, if Jesus is even actually God the Son himself, then when he lays down a challenge, we take it very seriously, I propose to you. And if we're not taking it very seriously, then who is Jesus to us? And what do we need to investigate or change? If you like a little bit of a structure and a signpost, our talk today will look at who Jesus is, what sort of savior Jesus is, and what sort of followers he wants. And my friend Phoebe is going to come and read the passage. Come on up, Phoebe. Luke chapter 9, verse 20. Thanks, pal. Oh, yeah, you want a microphone. Good job. Thanks so much. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for anyone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Amen. Thank you, Phoebe. Thank you so much. Keep that in front of you if you have it. Um, great. 
Thank you, mate. Jesus fixes his gaze at his disciples and says, okay now, never mind the rumors, never mind the crowds, who do you say that I am? And uh, could we have verse 20 up on the screen? That would be lovely. So let's get going with the challenges early this morning, shall we, friends? A challenge I invite you to take on. Why not do it now? Let's do this together. If you like, you can close your eyes. Imagine Jesus asks you that question. All right, never mind the crowds, never mind the rumors. Who do you say that I am? Hold that for a moment and stay there. The catch that I want to put to you in this challenge is you're not allowed to use any Christian-y words, okay? So you can't say Messiah, Savior, Lord. They're banned. Instead, I want you to use simple words to describe who he is. So you might say, uh, you're the one who made me. You're the one who loves me. You're the one who's in charge of my life. But I don't want to give you that. What matters is what you would say, okay? Who do you say I am. Who am I to you? Okay, stay there if you're there. Part two of this challenge is, is he? Is what you would say in part one true? If, for example, you you say, Jesus, you're the one who loves me, well, do you experience that? Are they just words that we've been taught, or is that your relationship with God? And if you're thinking, okay, well, I don't actually experience Jesus' love in my life very often, is there something that you can do to make space for that in your life, to make time to receive his love? Maybe you said, um, you're the boss of the choices I make. Okay, is that true? If you look back at the last few days, Practically ask yourself if Jesus wanted you to choose the things you chose or whether he would want you to choose differently. There's maybe one to take home and try on a a sleepy Sunday afternoon. Who do you say I am, says Jesus. And and I'll offer you a cheeky sub-challenge. Who do our lives say that Jesus is? Not our words, but the way we actually act. Great, there's a free gift to stab your soul a bit on a Sunday. Back in our passage, <laughs> verse 20, Peter answers Jesus. He answers on behalf of the disciples, and he answers, well, you're the Messiah. Peter was allowed jargon words. You're the Messiah, he says. He and the disciples, they'd watched Jesus doing God stuff, like commanding a storm to pipe down, taking authority over an army of demons, healing long-term illness, even raising the dead back to life. And they'd ask themselves, who is this? The obvious answer being, this is God, or someone who God is here and working through. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, which these disciples would have known, God had promised not to leave his people oppressed, but instead to send someone to redeem them, someone who was anointed for the task, which is what the word Messiah or or Christ translates as, as Toby said last week. God was going to send someone anointed to fulfill his mission of rescue and restoration of his people. So if you are living in Jesus' day, in the Jerusalem area maybe, 
and you're living under the enemy occupation of the Roman Empire, you might be thinking, oh, God's plan to set us free must be to overthrow this corrupt and ungodly government and install a true holy leader. Many people did. And so this idea had built up that the Messiah was going to bring in God's kingdom like a general bringing in a holy army that defeats God's enemies on the battlefield, becomes the new righteous king of Jerusalem, and makes Israel great again. I don't know if they'd have had hats. So that was the expectation. And in that context, as soon as someone says, God has sent his Messiah, all sorts of hopes and expectations and rumors would start to tumble forward. And before you know, people might start planning an armed uprising just to help the Messiah along, you know? So when Peter says, you're God's Messiah, Jesus responds, not by denying the title, but he jumps on it to say, do not spread this news. Do not share it. This will be misunderstood. Let me tell you, Jesus says, what sort of Messiah God has actually sent. Verse 22, the son of man must, that's him, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. There is a lot packed into these words that um, I would love to, uh, I'd love the time for, but I don't. So um, come to pub church on Friday and ask me about it. Jesus in this passage, in this verse, he calls himself the son of man, which is a reference to Daniel chapter seven's prophetic vision. So that glorious picture that Daniel unpacks in, in chapter seven, Jesus is saying, yeah, that, that's me. Also Messiah, that's me. And he's joining dots, which are pretty exciting. The elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, they are three groups who, uh, I only appreciated this this week, in fact, as I was preparing. Those three groups make up the Sanhedrin Council, which is the council who sentenced Jesus to death. So this wasn't just a general, people in charge won't like me. He was naming the groups. He was, it's kind of like, you know, the House of Commons, the House of Lords, and the King. He was listing the three people, the three groups who make up the council who executed him. And Jesus is here telling his disciples explicitly to expect the resurrection. Which you'd sort of hope they'd have remembered, right? You know? Although, you know, if you're living through Easter weekend and the horror, then surprise, then joy of it, then maybe you're allowed to forget amidst trauma, but come on, guys. Stepping back from that detail for a moment and just looking at the, the headlines of this verse, the description of the Messiah's mission that Jesus is sharing, it looks a lot like it's going to go wrong. No riding into Jerusalem on a triumphant war horse, ripping the Romans from ruling and restoring God's glorious empire on earth. Jesus is going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders, you know, the people with the authority of age and wisdom, the chief priests, the authority in religious terms, the teachers of the law, the authority on how to live right. That's not success. That's not the Messiah's mission seeming to go well, right? We who know about the resurrection Spoiler alert. We who know about the resurrection and how it then turned out 
might struggle to feel how confusing and crushing this moment might have been for the disciples. If you sort of forget the, it all turned out in the, all right in the end, and go back to how they received this news, what? You're the Messiah, you know. Not this. And, and haven't they just seen Jesus' mighty power and authority over nature, over demons, over sickness, death, over one packed lunch that feeds more than 5,000 people? To hear that guy describing what sounds a lot like, I am going to get defeated, it's a moment of, wait, what? You, the Messiah, killed? That's not how it's going to go. If you've ever had the uh, pleasure, mm. if you've ever been in a Bible study with me, uh, you will know, <laughs> let's not say pleasure, uh, if you've ever sat through me talking enthusiastically in a Bible study, you might have heard me say, one of my favorite questions is, what does this tell us about what God is like? So, this is the sort of Messiah God sent. What does this tell us about what God is like? That this was his rescue plan. I reckon it tells us God's priorities were different to these people's. Actually, this isn't in my script, but let me tag out. When, when people are talking about, oh, there's so much suffering in the world, legitimate observation, that there's awful pain in the world, we believe in a now and a not yet, that again, ask me at pub church, or over coffee at the end. There's so much that doesn't look right in this world, wouldn't it have been easier if God had just kicked out the corruption, kicked out the evil empires, right? Why, why didn't he ride in on a shiny white horse and sort it all out? This isn't just a them question. We're still asking versions of this now. God's priorities seem different, even to that valid ending of suffering perspective. We can focus so much on the, the particular pain of the moment that we want healed, or the particular problem that we want fixed. And, and yeah, that pain is often real and valid. The problem's often real and needs sorted. But I reckon that bigger than anything else that we face on this earth, anything else that we experience, is the question of our relationship with God. Are we in right relationship with God or in rebellion against him? That's a literal, eternal perspective. And the problem that humanity has faced throughout history is whether we're walking right with him or not. Everything else seems to fall out from there. Corruption, nastiness seems to increase as rebellion increases. Sure, some empires are crueler than others. Some political parties do better at looking after the weak and the helpless than others do. But that's all secondary. God's focus was on setting us free, individually and as a people, from the control that the enemy has over us through this world, through sin and the systems that draw us towards sin and away from God. Everything else flows from solving that. And that's what the Messiah came to address, to fix our biggest problem. That's why Jesus wasn't looking to Jerusalem's palace, but to its cross and its tomb. That is where Jesus' victory over corruption, sin, and death was going to take place. 
If verse 20 asks, who is Jesus, the Messiah? And verses 21 and 22 are Jesus saying what sort of savior he is. Then verses 23 to 26 are Jesus then setting a pretty challenging line about what sort of followers he wants. It's hard reading. Jesus is uncompromising about us compromising. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me, whoever loses their life for me, will save it. And yeah, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit your very self? And whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Do you find this uncomfortable? I find this uncomfortable. This is not, Jesus just said, be nice to each other, Christianity, is it? Jesus is setting the bar for following him really high. And this isn't you know, an interpretation, these are his words. The entrance price is death. Your self the way you see yourself, the rights you think you have, the claims you think you're entitled to, bin them. You don't belong to you anymore. You belong to God. And take up your cross, expect to be opposed for following Jesus, expect it to cost something, to feel like death, and still make that choice to follow Jesus every day. It's a lot, right? I kind of don't want to skim over that. There's a couple of ouch moments. Actually, this isn't scripted as well, so sorry. Uh, maybe, maybe there's a few of us this morning who are hearing these words and going, Yee. There's a verse um, that I haven't prepped the team for in, uh, in Revelation 3, and the church to the Laodiceans, or the letter to the church in Laodicea, that, that has God saying, Jesus saying, look, in or out, guys. Don't be lukewarm, hot or cold. Are you in or out? This is, this is challenging. So why? Why does Jesus ask so much of his followers? This isn't a prop, I just want some coffee. Why does Jesus ask so much of us? I think the answer lies in this. Because our world, our Bible teaches that this world is in opposition to God. This is not neutral territory. We're living under the control of the devil, who the Bible calls, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this age, small g. The God of this age. The Bible also calls the devil the ruler of the kingdoms of the air. This is Ephesians 2, verse 2. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient and that either used to be or still is us. The culture around us, the world that we inhabit, is set up to be actively steering us away from God, to make relationship with him as difficult as possible. And, and note, 
uh, Ephesians 6.12, that our struggle, this kind of wrestling, it's not against any person. There are, I can't point to a group who are the baddies. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The story the Bible tells about the reality we live in is one of an opposition, is one of a fight. Again, not against people, but we're living under enemy occupation in a war. So, if we love our lives in this world, well, that gives the enemy strings that he can pull to strain our relationship with God. I just come over here. Tension that he can introduce that weakens our desire to be with and to follow Jesus. If that's the context, then that means Jesus' invitation has to be, come follow me, but leave all of that at the door. You can't bring it here. We're not having that. And I think, I think God's church, I include myself in this, we've sometimes described following Jesus as like a pleasant bolt-on to life. You know what I mean? Yeah, life's great. Have some Jesus as well. He'll make it better. We've missold him. To properly invite Jesus into my life is to invite him to be the unrivaled boss of my life and expect him to put my old life to death and to give me a new and better life in him. It's, it's a big challenge. And it sounds pretty scary, but actually, it's a good deal. It'll mean that my old goals and hopes for my life will be challenged and some of them replaced. My hopes and dreams will be revisited and reimagined. My relationships will be scrutinized and some will be lost. Usually much better ones will be gained. It'll mean no longer hoping for money to make me happy, but discovering God's joy in the places I'd never known I could find it. think that the priorities and perspectives of the world that we live in are incompatible with following Jesus. And for a while, whilst Christianity has been mostly culturally acceptable in the West, maybe this hasn't been as obvious. Maybe this has been a little bit subtle. But in Jesus' day, if you said, no, I'm following that guy, you know, the one who claims to be the Messiah, the one who claims to be the Son of God, I'm following him. If you declared you were following Jesus, you were effectively cutting yourself off from your family, deciding to follow him away from all comfort and security and possibly to a literal death for being one of Jesus' followers. This was a serious decision. Maybe we've had it surreptitiously easy? I don't know. I'll come back to you on a better phrase than that. Matthew's gospel adds these chilling additions and explanations from Jesus. He says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me, man, I feel that these days, is not worthy of me. You, you sure, Lord? Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life in this world, in this culture, will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Eesh, right? I humbly propose to you, if you're not feeling squeamish at this, you're not listening to these words, right? This is stuff, right? 
But in, in Jesus' day, in this culture, where Jesus the Messiah, or calling Jesus the Messiah, means being accused of blasphemy and being handed over, maybe even by your closest friends and family, to be executed, Jesus didn't duck this. Jesus didn't shy away from this hard truth. Discovering the real God and following him in the world that is against him, this is costly. And, and of course, this is not ancient history. There are many places in the world today that are so hostile to Christianity that to become a follower of Jesus carries the same cost. And um, Open Doors is a charity that you can look up to, to see a bit more about that. Um, I invite you to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are making humongously costly decisions to follow Jesus, um, not knowing how it's going to end for them. So for most of us who, I pray, will never face a situation where we're challenged to deny Jesus at gunpoint, these words aren't as literal or as explicit. They're kind of more figurative. I think the threat to us in the comfortable West is more subtle. It's less when threatened with death, choose Jesus. It's more when the comforts, the temptations, and the distracting causes of this world start taking over our lives, stay focused on Jesus and reject anything that challenges him as the most important part. I think that our situation in Western culture is that we're far more likely to want to save our life as we experience it and therefore lose it and actually lose the real, eternal life with Jesus. I think it'll be more through subtle replacement than by force. So, why don't I get practical and try and be useful for a moment? If we say that Jesus is our God and that we want to be his disciple, what do we do? What does that mean for us? Verse 23 says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, daily and follow me. So let me use this verse to present to you a three-part practical offer. One, deny myself. The world around me, particularly the world of advertising, tells me to indulge myself. If I want chocolate for breakfast, I should have chocolate for breakfast, right? Who would be so oppressive as to stop me and to take my freedom to have chocolate for breakfast away from me? If I want something, I somehow deserve it. It's my right to have chocolate for breakfast, don't you know? And she wears right. It's my right to have chocolate for breakfast. It would be cruelty, morally wrong, to stop me having chocolate for breakfast. I deserve it, right? And outside of the world of advertising, if I see the world a certain way, no one can tell me I'm wrong. I'm entitled to my view. If you tell me I'm wrong about something, you're doing violence to me. In our culture, the self is everything. So step one to following Jesus, deny myself. Jim is not the God of Jim's life anymore. God is. So that means that Jim's desires for what might make a good day need to be checked against what God says are good choices. And this isn't the once and for all decision when I become a Christian. The self takes a bit more dying than that. A lot more dying than that. This is a daily choice to examine the habits and the perspectives that I held before I knew Jesus and that the world keeps pushing on me. To constantly call them out and deny them. 
There are things called spiritual disciplines that, again, I wish I had time to talk more about because they're great. These are tools that help us to grow stronger in our relationship with God and better at resisting the, the cries of self. Fasting is one example, um, whether that's fasting food, alcohol, social media, TV, streaming services, whatever it is that you recognize has too much input in your life and using that time to spend in devotion to God. So fasting, that's just one example amongst many. Step one, deny myself. Step two, take up my cross daily. Jesus instructed us to take up our cross, which given how he was then executed by the Sanhedrin and Rome is another poignant signpost to our disciples, right? When someone was sentenced to crucifixion, they were often made to carry their own cross to the place of execution. So everyone would see that they were a criminal who was forced to submit to the Roman rule. They fought the law and the law won. So to take up our cross for Jesus, it's not Jesus punishing us. It's not him torturing us. But it's recognizing that following him means taking a stand in the world that won't like it and may well respond nastily. That might look like being ridiculed in school or in work amongst our family or friends for being a Christian. Whether being a Christian costs us friends, a romantic relationship, even a career, whatever life I am denied in this world, choosing to be with Jesus and to do what he says is, well, it's choosing to suffer alongside him. He didn't say, take up your cross and go over there with it. The God that we follow went low so that we're following him, the journey that he took. It means then allowing to be put to death the things that would pull us away from him. It's not as big an ask as it could have been. Well, okay, Jim, allow things to be put to death, allow separation from the world, what are you saying? Should we all go and become hermits? I don't think that Jesus wants to extract us from living in the world. I think he wants us to be in this world, amongst the people he wants to reach, but not to be motivated by the same things not to be aiming for the same goals. So rather than take up your cross, meaning don't engage with the world, I think instead it's don't live for that stuff. For example, money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Spot the difference? Using money and kind of being part of that system so long as it's not the focus, sure. The love of money, ah, problem. And if you look at how Jesus dealt with people who had wealth when he met them. Romantic relationships. They're not necessarily bad for us. Some of them are. Some of them definitely are pulling us away from God. People speaking well of us. That in itself is no bad thing. Unless that becomes your motivation... And the way that we find ourselves torn between doing what we think God is asking us to do in this situation and the, the praise or threat of criticism from others. In all those areas and more, anything that begins to compete with God as the center of our lives, we're to give them to him. And allow that part of our lives to die. There is a cost to following Jesus. I don't want to pretend this isn't hard. I don't think Jesus pretended it wasn't hard. And I think he said daily, deliberately, 
Choosing Jesus amidst opposition has to be an over and over and over decision. So thirdly then, denying ourself and taking up our cross daily will put us in a good place to follow him. If we're aware that our self is fickle, untrustworthy, and, well, selfish, and if I choose not to indulge but to deny myself, and if I have the mindset of, I will take up and carry my cross today, I'll choose Jesus above other things that challenge him, despite the cost. If I'm doing those things, then I will find it much easier to hear his voice, to listen to Jesus and to go where he asks me to go, much more easily than if I was half in, half out, trying to play both games at the same time, constantly living in the tension of whether to go with the world or with Jesus on each decision. Verse 24 says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, to win the rat race, and lose their very self in the process? I, I think Jesus is saying, don't bust a gut trying to play it both ways. It's not going to work. If we're trying to hold on to the things that this world system values, the definitions of success, the things that we want but know that it means compromising our relationship with Jesus, the oh-so-shiny carrot at the end of the stick that would mean giving up our life for Jesus to work for that carrot, we can't serve two masters. We can't win both games. So if we indulge ourselves, sorry, invest ourselves, you know, indulgence works here too. If we invest ourselves in the things of this world at the expense of a relationship with him, we'll lose what matters most, our true self. And also, possibly terrifying eternal consequence, which verse 26 brings home with deeply uncomfortable sobriety. Jesus is giving another little glimpse of who he is there. He is God's Messiah. And he is bringing God's justice in one day, actually. But not just to those nasty political groups over there. We need to make sure we are in right standing with him when we meet him. Shiny. Which, all of which to say, brings us back to who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? He's God's promised Messiah, but he's dealing with a much bigger problem than the Roman Empire. God the Son himself come to reach out to us, to save us from the systems of the world, the works of the enemy that would drag us away from a close relationship with God. If we recognize who Jesus is, if we see, yeah, you're the Messiah, you are the Son of God, I'm going to take you seriously, that is the only context, the only way in which these bold challenges from Jesus make any sense at all. Whether or not all of this is worth hearing and acting on depends entirely on one crucial question. Who do you say I am? Can I invite you to stand? We're going to pray just now. Keep this.
So I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. Um, and then we're going to invite, for, invite you, if you'd like someone to pray for you. Um, we call this prayer ministry. Let me explain what that looks like before I pray, okay? Um, anyone who says, yeah, okay, I, I feel like God's been doing something in my heart or in my mind during this service, whether it's through the worship, um, through the preach, we'd like to say, uh, we'd like to invite you to, to come stand in this space here, and then someone who's a member of one of our home groups will come and ask if you'd like them to pray with you, and um, come and ask God's presence to meet you, ask God to speak to you, um, and just ask God to bless you. Could be for any reason whatsoever, um, could be something that, like I say, God's been at work in your heart or mind, or actually you could have just come along this morning going, I really want someone to pray for my knee. Whatever your reason is, you'd be really welcome. Um, Here's a couple of practical thoughts for you. Do we know, do you know already there are habits that are in tension with living for Jesus? Things that get in the way of you spending time with him. People or situations that pull us away from following Jesus at the high challenge that he asks us. Things that are influencing us away from him. Even hopes, dreams that we have for wealth, for a relationship, any fulfillment of self that are not built honestly and securely on I am going to live for Jesus and do what he tells me. If any of those things apply, then in a moment I'm going to ask if you'd like to come forwards and someone will come and pray for you. Right now, though, let's pray together. Lord, you, you ask a lot. And even if we can work out why, and, and even if we say, yeah, it's with good reason, Lord, this, this might well feel like an awful lot to some or most of us this morning. So would you come and speak to us, Lord? Would you be whispering into our hearts and minds just now whatever you want each individual to hear and receive from you, Lord? Come, Holy Spirit, be ministering in each of these hearts. And would you bring your truth and love hand in hand as we know you do?